You're listening to Cybersecurity Inside, a podcast focused on getting you up to speed on issues in cybersecurity with engaging experts and stimulating conversations. To learn more, visit us at intel.com slash cybersecurity inside. What are the components within that supply chain? And can we verify that those are actually the right components? You can get the benefits of AI without having to share too much of your own personal data. Holy cow, there's so many places this could go wrong now, right? And, and how do I secure all of this? Hi, welcome to the Cybersecurity Inside podcast. I'm your host, Tom Garrison, and with me is my co-host, Camille Moorhart. Camille, how are you today? I'm doing really well because unlike the guest that we interviewed for this podcast, I got more than two hours of sleep last night. I know she thrives on two hours of sleep a night, so that wasn't even unusual for her, uh, but I need much more than that. So I'm doing well with much more than that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Our our guest today, without giving too much away, will put almost everyone that's listening to the podcast to shame in terms of what she accomplishes, not just over her career, but even within just a single day, all the different hats she wears and what she can get accomplished. She's truly an inspiring individual. Yeah, she and uh, she and her husband are starting a company and they also have two little kids. And it's just fascinating. They're starting a company that deals with manufacturing in the United States, which is not something that we hear about every day, especially in tech. Yeah, and I think going into a little bit more depth with her, in terms of what are the areas that really matter when you're when you're starting a small company what do you have to think about when it comes to security and and who do you work with and how you know you're not a major corporation with years and years of policies and procedures and lawyers and everything else in in play you know we dive into a bit more of the the nuts and bolts of what do you have to think about when it comes to starting up a manufacturing facility, you know, in the US and what matters to the customers who want to buy from a security company that manufactures in the US. I also thought that her personal story which she related to us about uh, immigrating to the United States when she was very young uh, and then how she was as a young child, I think she said around 7 years old doing the business negotiations for her family because she was the best person speaking English and how that kind of shaped her and her ability to never stop, never give up, you know, push through uh, and how she kind of cultivated that into now being an entrepreneur and how she does a lot of the things she does so that her daughters can see a path and can see how to approach things with confidence um, and, perseverance, <laughs> grit. I, I thought that was really interesting to hear that personal side of the story also. Um, and and clearly, as I hinted, you know, when we first started, the, she is, uh, she's just an inspiration in terms of all the things she can get done. So she's taken those somewhat uh, humble beginnings in terms of, you know, having to do just the translation work now into growing businesses and manufacturing and truly uh, branching out into the security space. Yeah, very impressive lady. 
Our guest today is Min Kiriannis. She is CEO and co-founder of Amina Systems and managing director of EMD JMK. She has 25 plus years in converged and global information technology and operational technology, as well as cybersecurity, physical and risk management across the globe. She's received numerous accolades for her work and is currently focusing on nonprofits as a way of giving back to the community. So welcome to the podcast, Min. Thank you, Tom. And thank you, Camille, for having me. Um, it's, I'm happy to be here and I'm, I'm sure we're having a blast talking to you both. That's right. Well, it's our goal. We're going to have some fun. <laughs> Before we get into the cybersecurity elements, I, I thought it would be good maybe to have you talk a bit about your background. Oh, uh, hmm. there's a numerous background. So uh, literally a jack of all trades. Saying 25 plus years already gave away my age, darn it. But uh, started off as one of the few females in the IT industry, you know, um, working for a client side, pun- doing punch downs, configuring networks and routers. So I was really heavily engaged with networking. And that went on for about over a decade, a little bit over a decade. And then I decided to resign because I got fed up with IT. Um, I actually broke three computers programming uh, because I couldn't yell at it and it didn't respond to me. So I smacked it. And I think I broke the motherboard real hard. <laughs> so and plus the fact I can't, you know, it doesn't respond when I yell, yell at them. So that wasn't a good thing. And then decided to go into catering and modeling, which was fun. Catering was much more fun. But that being said, after a few years of that, uh, someone had came up to me and was looking for me because they knew I had a technical background and brought me back to technology. And at that point, I was actually working in security, uh, physical security. And that just came and never left. Loved it ever since. Um, And really keeps me on my toes. And currently now, I'm working with a bunch of organizations. Women in International Security is one, um, which is really looking at women. We work with NGOs and also on the policy side. And also now we're creating a bunch of foundations, one specifically dedicated to underprivileged youths to give them opportunities, um, which they otherwise wouldn't have. And also looking at veterans, seeing if there's a way to help veterans who are just recently discharged from the military at the same time. And then just a few others, the Global Cyber Consortium, as well as Moms Insecurity, specifically geared toward combating human trafficking. So we raise funds to actually help organizations who are boots on the ground to help save children and women from who are in forced labor. Wow. There is so much to talk about there. Let's start with the more traditional areas. And then we'll, I think we'll probably over the course of our time together, we'll, we'll move into some of these newer areas. You mentioned physical security. So I assume that you're talking about manufacturing a physical box that aids in security in some way. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, the box that we manufacture isn't part of physical security. Physical security is mostly, you know, people think of as law enforcement, uh, perimeter security. Hmm. Um, the box that we're manufacturing is actually geared to IoT devices, specifically issues that you see that's out there. What we've been trying to do is really fill the gap that's there. And we've actually figured out how to do it. Currently, the box that we're manufacturing, even the software that we're writing, is all proprietary. Um, it's it's specifically geared to looking at and also protecting these devices that actually have no security built in, I would say, from legacy devices to recent devices at the same time. So when you're talking about IoT, I know you used to work in that intersection of IT and IoT. Are you looking at connecting Greenfield or new devices and IoT or consumer devices or 
things that have been out there. <laughs> I think it's everything that's out there. And the reason being specifically for that is because with COVID, everything has been blurred. I mean, we're all working from home. So the expectation is when you go home, you should be able to connect to your workplace and also work and perform your functions at the same time. So for us, we kind of view it more as an entire ecosystem. It's not whether it's commercial, residential, private or public. It's basically everything, all the devices. Yeah. And so your solution basically enables a modern sort of interface with these devices Correct. that were never designed to be, mm-hmm. so whether they be control systems or other things that were probably architected in some cases, many, many, many years ago. Or right? decades ago. Yeah. yeah. Fact. And so your, your device allows you to connect to those systems that were probably proprietary as well. Not only were they not connected, but they were probably proprietary. And then you can manage them in a more modern way remotely or whatever. And you do that securely for obvious reasons. That's 100%. The big thing is securely. I think this is the biggest concern because the past couple of years, I've been touting um, critical infrastructure needs to be protected. And with all the EOs, with Biden's EO that's out right now, it's. It, I think it's coming to fruition that people are starting to realize and say, hey, oh my God, you know, we have to start protecting this infrastructure. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you've got pipelines being, uh, you know, yep. yeah, the colonial pipeline. You've got other other things that are in the news seemingly every day now with different uh, meat packing plants and oh, meat pa- water treatment plants. Water treatment plants. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what is interesting to me is not just the, the opportunity that you're going after, but you have a, a pretty interesting, uh, I guess, challenge, I'll say in that you are physically building something, but that device itself has to be very, very highly trusted. So first of all, where do you manufacture and how do you navigate through into having that super high trust in the device side so that you can build the trust with the customers who are gonna be putting this in very, very sensitive parts of their network? So one of the things we've been working on, especially is I'm not, building every single component directly right now. Uh, That would be the main goal later on. But the reality is we do have to work with partners at the same time who are providing specific components um, that we're building. So one of the key things we ask is supply chain. Where are you acquiring these components from? How are you doing it? And there's some sort of due diligence that's provided. We are looking at that very, very uh, diligently, specifically on the fact that if we are and hope to work with the government, we have to ensure that these devices are secured. So one of the things that we're doing is also quality control. We're actually making sure that these devices are tested properly before it gets shipped out. But we're at the proof of concept stage. So what we've been doing is heavily testing these boxes to ensure that there is no compromise. There's no way of getting in. But that's just now. So, you know, with cybersecurity and security being so dynamic, we need to always be ahead of the game as we're kind of manufacturing and working with these devices. So the team is critical. And I think it's not just the supply chain, but also the team of people that you're working with needs to be also vetted and, and looked at properly. Uh, and that's what we're doing right now as we're developing these components, the software, the boxes itself. We're working with the right people and also the right companies at the same time. So this is like a physical device that sits somewhere on site or close to an area where you're connecting something, a thing mm-hmm. for Internet of Things, and helps ensure that it's connecting securely. Um, and you're being very diligent during the course of the the supply chain through manufacturing. And then this device goes out to its resting place or its site of operation. How are you protecting or, or, or what kinds of things do you need to protect against once the device is already deployed? 
Wow. So that's a loaded question. I hope you realize that, Camille. So there's two things that we have to think about, too. Um, Once the device leaves our home or where the manufacturer is, it actually goes to the owners. So recommendations have to be in place specifically around the owners. And this is one of the big things I keep talking about is as much as we're talking about cybersecurity and security and environment, there's a physical aspect to it, right? You don't, you cannot install these type of devices in a public area where people can easily get access to. And that means also access control, ensuring these devices are in a secure location properly, you know, set up with proper credentials, people walking in. So there's a collaborative effort that has to happen between the manufacturer, the distributor, integrator, as well as the owners themselves. And I think this is where the ownership has to be taken, you know, by everybody. It's not just us as a manufacturer providing you with a secure device to protect your devices. You also have to protect your assets because once you procure these assets, they belong to you. So if it's sitting in Tom's building or Tom's home, my God, Tom, I do hope you protect your house so no one can break in. But the expectation is you're going to have to put this somewhere secure where people can't break in and tamper with the device. Yeah, I think physical security, which is why I got confused earlier, but the physical security piece is a much higher bar because for example, protecting the network so that somebody can't come in from the outside is one level of challenge. And people kind of think about that. Like I got to keep my network safe um, yeah. and don't let anybody in, but physical security, they can actually hold the box and, and open it up and, and put probes in and do this and that, and whatever. And in the case of IOT, some of these things are out really in the wild west i mean there yeah. there's not necessarily people around to even watch them do this so no um yeah the challenge there is super super high from a from a physical security and protecting to that level of threshold so the fact that you're doing that i think is interesting where i was where i was hoping we could even explore more was you said i i need to work with the right people yes and i need to work with the right companies Mm-hmm. And and now being somebody who's gone through that journey, I, I'd like to understand more about how do you do that? How do you define what right is? And, and, and even more importantly, once you're convinced that they are the right people, how do you convince your customers that you're working with the right people? You know, people are going to be people. Um, I'm not a person I trust very easily. But I think if you were speaking to a right individual, I think first and foremost is understanding who these individuals are. I can't just go into you know a shop and say, hey, but Mr. Bob, I, I need your help right now. I don't know who you are, but I trust you 100%. Can you provide me with this stuff right now? And God forbid he buys it from eBay. Now, that being said, that's not the right person that you want to work with. So the right people in my mind is you're going to speak to these people. You're going to ask for their credentials. You're going to get these credentials coming in. There's going to be contracts signed in advance that basically tie. And it's going to be ironclad because lawyer is going to be involved. But there's going to be discussions around this first before any, you know, anything happens. That journey, unfortunately, uh, was, let's say, for, unfortunately, fortunately, it was very good because I've already established a rapport in the industry and also have worked with numerous other folks that I've known already for a substantial amount of time. So that relationship has already been established. Now, we just have to go and deep dive further in now because we already had that relationship already. Let's talk about the other things. Like, where are you getting your components from? Can you show me the proof that you're getting this components of where, where this is coming from? Who are you working with? This is stuff that, unfortunately, you know, people can lie. But p- with people that you work with for, you know, a long time, 
it's harder for them because there's a reputation there also. And, and I think with folks that have been, that you've been working for, with for quite a bit of time, you're going to know if there's something wrong. You know, you're going to understand their body language. You can understand how they work due to business dealings. You can understand who they've been dealing with for a long time. And if something shifts, you're going to know right away. And, and that's the norm. With someone new, it's the same process, but it's going to be a little more stringent because you're going to have your lawyers involved at that point, reviewing every single document that comes through to your table. And that basically means everything I have to look at and review gets passed to my lawyers and they review it before I actually sign the line and says, okay, let's work. So I, I think, um, that journey has been very interesting. Um, and because I've already established some relationships in the past, it's been a lot easier than others. But, you know, if you're starting from ground up, those relationships are going to be critical. Even if they're new that you're establishing, you're going to have to get to know these people before you actually jump in and start doing, doing any type of business dealings with them. And, you know, the other thing also is trusting your gut. You're going to know when something's off. But, but this is the thing. You're going to know if you can talk to people and work with these guys in the long term. And that's what we've been doing. We've been working very diligently across that and working with people, talking to a lot of folks that we, we would want to partner with. So I want to try to branch now into some of the other things that you talked about in your introduction, because they just sound really, really interesting. So you mentioned that you are working with an agency that also talks about security of women. And can, oh, you talk, yes. can you talk more about that and what, what the challenges are and what, what it is that the group is, is focused on? So you mean women in international security wise? Yes. yes. So I, I co-chaired a New York chapter. Um, so one of the things that uh, I'm going to call her out, Elisa Mula and I, my, myself have been doing in the past, and we've known each other for, well, way too long, is that when we were in this industry, there were really only a handful of women. Um, in the industry, and I can literally count the number of names that I've known um, 20, 25 years ago on one hand. Um, and it was very challenging. It's a very male-dominated industry, even in security, physical security, IT. It's always been ma very male-dominated. That being said, mentorship has been extremely difficult. So there wasn't a mentorship. You had to learn things on your own or really kind of claw some ways and read a lot to get to, to an executive level. So one of the things... Lisa and I talked about was, you know, why don't we work on an organization and to, let's take a look at it, see how we can provide a platform to young ladies and also the ones that aren't are less represented who don't have these mentors to provide them with some sort of mentorship, professional development, whatever is needed just to get them support that there are people out here that want to see them succeed. And because I have two girls, I will be honest, um, I don't want them going through the struggles I have or have had in the past to really get to where I am. So really, you know, working with WISE, which has been around for 35 years, it was just, it just fell in my lap, um, which has been phenomenal meeting some of the people. We've been working with uh, a, a UN liaison who's been our, our, one of our biggest advisors and supporters. But it really is to provide mentorship, professional development to young, budding people who are interested in gaining some, you know, knowledge, thought transfer, and really becoming leaders themselves. So that's what WISE is. So what we've been doing is creating um, newsletters, groups, conferences. We've been pushing these women to see, or speaking more on public forums. And hopefully later on, I want to see these women in papers really leading the, the industry in strength. So that's what that's about. Um, it, it really is for that. Min, you, you, to me, it seems you kind of exude confidence. And, and I'm just wondering, it sounds like 
I mean, you came from when you were starting a couple decades ago, like you said, a handful of other women that you saw. Were you born with this confidence? Did you ever doubt that you were going to get to where you are today? Um, does it wane ever? <laughs> uh, the imposter syndrome. So there are days I know imposter syndrome comes in. I was not a privileged child growing up. I actually had a very rough past growing up in a sense that my parents were living in poverty lines and um, my parents struggled to make ends meet. So we were, we were considered one of those immigrants that were literally coming here with penniless. Um, and I grew up in the United States. So I've been put into many challenging positions in the past, pretty much at a young age to take the lead. And unfortunately, when you're seven and eight and your parents are asking you to do things, you know, you, they don't speak English and you're the one that has to do all the business negotiations. It's very hard to break down because you learn very quickly that you really have to put an ironclad face on. So I've learned at a very young age to put up a wall and a shield just so that way things get done. And as much as I, I sometimes look back with regret that I wish, you know, I was entitled and had certain privileges my friends did, um, I didn't. And I don't look back with regret, but I look, look at it as a learning curve for me where I started moving forward. Um, and that's where that came from. It's really just that grit. My husband always said to me that like, you look like you're about to take over the world. And I said, yeah, I do want to take over the world, but in the right way and with a positive, positive message going forward. Um, so, but, so the confidence comes from really, you know, looking at my past and really thinking forward as to what can we do to make this better? Um, and also for my kids, really, they're going to be facing with certain challenges I had, and hopefully they gain the confidence now seeing me as a mother moving forward like this versus, you know, coming back crying and crossing my fingers. <laughs> well, really crossing my so, fingers. so I happen to know not only are you a successful businesswoman and you're doing this mentoring work, you've also been trained as a professional chef. Yes, I had been. <laughs> <laughs> That was one of those things that you do, which is weird. <laughs> yes. I, that too. <laughs> if you're interested in coming to my house for a feast, I welcome you because I've been told I cook for an army <laughs> and I used to cater. Yes. <laughs> well, I guess the real question here is how do you find the time? There is no sleep. Sleep does not exist. <laughs> sleep is for the no I, I kid um i'm an insomniac i've always been an insomniac and um to be candid um my brain is always rolling um so when i sleep too much um, i become very lethargic um so this is this is me with two hours of sleep very hyper oh my god <laughs> so you slept how much sleep do you normally get uh, about two to four hours every day at most two <laughs> hours within 24 hours yeah i am like, a very hyper person <laughs> wow I, I didn't know that was possible <laughs> it is certainly impressive in terms of what you can get done so that's uh, uh, you know that's incredible so i think you have elevated yourself at least in my mind to superhero category so we've got oh thank you <laughs> now if i can make laser eye beams that'd be even better but that's another story there you go well you know so min this has been really really interesting from a uh, background and, and obviously all the things that you're working on it's just mm -hmm. so inspiring really but before we let you go we do have in our podcast the opportunity 
to share a fun fact Ooh. with our listeners. And so I know that we, we, we let you know that this was coming, but with all of your background, of all the things that you could talk about that you've shared here, I'm, I'm just intrigued with what are you going to share with us today? Mm, okay. So do you guys like hot peppers? Of course. Well, define hot. Yeah. Spicy. <laughs> Very spicy hot. I mean, not ghost pepper level. Oh, but... I, I'm, I'm talking the world's hottest pepper Oh, no, no, no. No, don't even. I'm oh dying to hear where this so, goes. So I'm a pepperhead, and I love spicy peppers. So I, when I was pregnant with my two girls, I was literally chewing ghost peppers and, and habaneros raw. Oh, oh wow. That was the only thing that could keep the morning sickness down. It was so bad. Mm. So so those hot peppers, ghost peppers, and habaneros do nothing to me. Well, I found there, there was actually a spicier pepper than that. It's either the scorpion pepper or the Carolina Reaper. And now wow. I'm growing them in my backyard because I make this hot pepper sauce. <laughs> and I'm happy to send you both some. No, please don't. Actually, my, my, son, my son probably would love it. He loves super hot stuff. But anything with the word Reaper in it, I think I'm out. <laughs> It's actually not too bad. It actually has some really nice flavors to it. And it actually, it maxed out at 2.2 Scoville units. That's the type of rating scale it uses for hot peppers. So I marinate these peppers raw in a black vinegar and soy sauce base. And it comes out really nice and sweet, but it's, it kicks up a heat. It's a little spicy for me. I, don't, I, t- I eat it with discretion. That's wow. why I'm growing them. Wow. <laughs> That's great. So, Camille, what what fun fact do you have for us today? Okay, well, I got stuck on the fact that Min was a chef, too. So I was trying to think of something food that was interesting. And, you know, one of my um, one of my really good friends uh, is from Japan and he just had to fly back there to help a family member. And so I started thinking about that because one of the things he's going to do is eat a bunch of fresh fish. And I remembered going to Tsukiji Fish Market when I was living in Japan, and I just loved that experience. Um, and so I thought, what is interesting about that place? They must have had, I mean, it's the first place I tried, I think, uh, sea urchin, uni, oh, the yeah. uh, orange. It's Ooh. bright orange. Yep. Me, me too. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and then I was, so I just looked some stuff up. I realized Skiji has since closed or moved or kind of been replaced. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's still a tourist attraction there. Um, but when I was there, it was in full swing. And it says that they, on a typical day, they sell 3.6 million pounds of seafood. Yeah. Which wow. is just a lot. Yeah. 3.6 million pounds on a day, you know? Wow. I guess the value of that they're saying in U.S. dollars is about fourteen million dollars a day, yeah. which actually seemed kind of low to me compared with yeah. the poundage. Really, a cool thing. Yeah, I so I've been there uh, multiple times and uh, before it closed. And what I was taken back by was not just the size, which I agree with you is amazing. It's also that when I think about a fish market, I think about fish. And when you're there, okay, mm-hmm. yeah, they got fish, but they got just about Every other thing you can imagine, I mean, you can get the the sea cucumbers, you could get the oh, these good. like eel looking things, you can mm-hmm. get yeah. uh, various forms of kelp, and it, if it's in the ocean, you can buy it at that place. It is it's kind wow. of crazy, but 
I've learned something um, new today. So here's mine. So I knew that Min was going to talk something about food. We didn't know what it was. Could we try to keep some some level of secrecy here? But uh, so I decided I would go on the farm side of farm to table. When I think about farms, I think about the iconic buildings, you know, the big red barn. And what I found interesting when I did this research was that uh, the whole uh, history behind the red barn, it's not paint. Um, New England's uh, settlers didn't have enough money to actually paint their farms. So they, uh-huh. they needed a cheap way to protect the barn's wood. And so what they did was they mixed skim milk, lime, and red iron oxide, basically the rust, huh. uh, to make red plastic-like coating that went on their barns to protect the wood. And, there's, and some uh, other places said there was also linseed oil in there. But the, but the, uh, the red actually came from – it wasn't paint. Uh, it actually came from rust. It was just iron oxide that they would have around you know, any farm with metal and the uh, elements. They'd take that rust and mix it in, and, and then that, that's what they would coat the buildings with. So. That's interesting. Wow. Okay. All right. Learned there you go. Too. That's very Love cool. it. Well, you know, that's the aim of the show. We hopefully will teach you something about security, but also you'll learn something else that you didn't know about. <laughs> Some kind of a fun That's fact. right. But Min, thank you very much for joining today. I think, you know, we, we covered a, a, a wide range of topics with you, but I, I will say, you know, your journey and what you're accomplishing, not only in cybersecurity, but just in general as a human being is really inspiring. So thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cybersecurity Inside. Follow at Tom M. Garrison and Camille at Moorhart on Twitter to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guests and author and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Intel Corporation.